This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Nearly every office there seems to be a person with a prestigious sounding job title even though nobody really knows what it is that they do. The White House Chief of Staff sounds like a pretty major role, right? But it's also a loosely defined one. What power do those in this position have? How do they wield it? And what should we look out for from the next person to take on the job? I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me to discuss this for the Bunker USA is Dave Cohen, a professor of political science at the University of Akron. David, welcome to The Bunker. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Ron Klain recently announced his departure from this role. What's that going to mean for President Joe Biden? Well, um, you know, from Joe Biden's perspective, hopefully not a whole lot. Uh, hopefully the person that they've chosen, Jeffrey Zients, will be able to come in and uh, just kind of continue with the work and with the processes that have already been in place. It's always best for a president, you know, when you have successive chiefs of staff, which is always the case, uh, that the transition is a smooth one and that essentially the public and the media don't even really notice that the previous person is actually gone. So from Biden's perspective, he wants a smooth transition. Fact is, though, when you have a new chief of staff coming in to a White House, uh, inevitably things are going to change. uh, And that means People are going to change. The The new chief of staff will always uh, seek to put in some of their own people in high levels, uh, in high places, so that they can uh, have their back, people that they trust, people that are loyal to them. And inevitably, that means that people that have been in the White House will end up leaving the White House or being reassigned to, to different positions. It's pretty rare for a successor chief of staff to come in and not be able to make any changes. That actually has happened a couple times in history, um, going from Rahm Emanuel to Bill Daley, for example, in the Obama uh, White House. Uh, President Obama actually chose Bill Daley's successors, um, not successors, his deputy chiefs of staff, the people that, that work for him. It was a very odd move because that rarely happens. And I think that was one of the reasons why Bill Daley was ultimately unsuccessful uh, as a chief of staff. But most of the time, chief of staff gets to come in and make some changes. Is that power dynamic between the president and the chief of staff sometimes hard to address? Ron Klain has seemed quite a a forward-facing figure. He hasn't seemed like an anonymous figure in any way. So to me, even if the next person that comes in is quite anonymous and the press don't notice them, that will be a change purely because Ron Klain wasn't. 
Well, and absolutely. And that's, that is a function of what the president wants and really a function of what the chief of staff is good at. Ron Klain, uh, who had all these years in working in the White House, dealing with the media and having a very public role in previous administrations, he, he found that role to be very easy, uh, you know, to be a public facing uh, person, somebody that represented or was a proxy of the president. You know, it'll be interesting to see if his successor, Jeff Zients, is the same way. He's not nearly as well known, either inside the Beltway or, or to the to the larger public. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if he is uh, actually that comfortable. But it's it's really whatever the president wants out of that chief of staff and what are the skill sets of that individual. You know, you've had people in the, the role that are really terrible on television, or really terrible in dealing with members of Congress. And you've had uh, other chiefs that have been, you know, fantastic in that role. And so it really is kind of a combination of what the president wants and what the chief of staff is comfortable doing and is really good at. Biden's wanted to be a sort of unity president, and Ron Klain has been praised for pacifying the left of the Democrats somewhat. Do you think, you know, running up to 2024, particularly with there being questions over whether Biden will definitely run again, losing someone who can tame that side of the party might be a bit of a problem for him. You know, uh, in terms of the life cycle of the presidency, probably not as much as it would have been in the first couple of years when the Democrats had unified government. And there was an expectation that the Biden uh, administration pass a number of big ticket legislative items. You know, anybody with a pulse that, you know, observes Washington and understands how, uh, you know, it works knows that uh, it's going to be very difficult for the Biden administration to really do anything uh, legislatively um, with the Republicans controlling the House of Representatives. Inevitably, the focus is going to shift to the presidential campaign, whether it's Joe Biden running again, which I suspect he will, or whether it's an, you know, free for all in terms of getting the, the Democratic nomination. If Biden decides not to run again, his legislative agenda is just dead uh, because it means that he's a lame duck. And uh, immediately after he makes that announcement, attention will turn to the campaign uh, and people will not be paying attention much to, to what the, the White House is actually doing. So I don't think you're going to have in the Democratic Party uh, a bunch of progressive members of the uh, House of Representatives banging the drum to get their stuff passed because they know that their their agenda is dead as well. Klain was excellent at working with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. There's been a lot of concern about the incoming chief of staff, Jeffrey Zients, and the fact that he is very different than Ron Klain. Uh, he you know, has a uh, career in corporate America. He's not someone that has uh, shown a lot of sympathy towards progressive ideas. Uh, and he's definitely someone that's more uh, tilted towards the, the the centrist wing of the Democratic Party. So there are a lot of media figures in the uh, on the left that have you know been disappointed with this pick. However, he is somebody that has worked well on both sides with both sides of the aisle. He's a good manager, and um, you know he's been in the highest levels of the White House not only in this administration but also in the Obama administration. So he's got that necessary White House experience that you want in a chief of staff. Taking it right back here, how did the job of chief of staff come to be? Who was the first person who took on that role and how did it get formulated? You can kind of see the footprints, uh, really, of uh, the modern chief of staff role going all the way back to Washington. But I think most scholars agree 
that we really don't see a White House chief of staff until the 1950s when uh, Dwight Eisenhower comes into the presidency and he decides to uh, name Sherman Adams, uh, the governor of New Hampshire, as his chief of staff. And what Eisenhower did was he he borrowed what the military had been doing, uh, you know, for seems like all of time and, and brought that kind of chief of staff managerial system into the, the civilian White House. He wanted somebody that could kind of be the sentry at the front door and, and you know, guard his time, guard his political interests, oversee the policy process. And he got that in Sherman Adams. And in fact, Sherman Adams is the longest serving chief of staff in American history. Uh, I think it was six and a half years. He was feared. He was loathed. But he was crucial to Dwight Eisenhower. He did exactly what what President Eisenhower uh, wanted. And the only reason he left was because he got into uh, uh, got into trouble and had to resign uh, his uh, his seat. But he he's looked at really as kind of the first person. He didn't have the title chief of staff. That doesn't happen until 1981 when James Baker is officially titled White House chief of staff. Essentially what Sherman Adams was doing and uh, his successor and then some some uh, others in the Nixon administration, those were essentially uh, modern chiefs of staff and, and kind of gave birth to the modern conception of the role. Democratic presidents didn't like that hierarchical decision-making uh, and, um, and managerial style that Republicans had. They, uh, they resisted it for a long time. They, they liked to gather everybody around the, the table and get all sorts of collaborative uh, discussion going. But, but Democratic presidents soon realized that the modern presidency and, the, and modern society just did not afford the president that kind of time to have that kind of decision-making anymore. And so President Jimmy Carter reluctantly in 1978, after uh, you know running his White House without a chief of staff, names Hamilton Jordan uh, chief of staff. And ever since that time, every president has had a chief of staff, uh, even Democratic presidents. So am I right in saying it began as a more functional sort of role and then over time has it gradually become more politicized and become more about advising and being a counsel to the president as opposed to being a sort of bulwark or organizer as it might have been in the past? I think you're right in that at the beginning, uh, it was more of a, a managerial role. In our work, we talk about four different roles that the, the chief of staff has, the administrator, the guardian, the advisor, and the proxy. And those managerial roles, which are you know the administrator of the White House, somebody that makes sure that the, the trains are all running on time to just kind of oversee the, the workings of the White House, that was really the, the primary focus of the early chiefs of staff was that administrative managerial role. But, you know, it was also the guardian role, uh, and which is protecting the president's political interests and gatekeeping his time, making sure that people aren't streaming into the Oval Office constantly and bugging the president uh, when they don't need to be overseeing the paper that goes into the to the Oval Office because the, the president has to deal with a lot of memos and a lot of a lot of papers and, and the chief of staff needs to make sure that you know not everything is uh, getting into uh, the president. Those managerial roles were, were very important from the very beginning. And I think you're you're absolutely correct in that you see over time the more political and policy roles of the White House Chief of Staff become more important. And so, you know, you have the, the chief of staff as advisor and, and, you know, being an honest broker of the advising process and making sure that the president is hearing all the different voices uh, 
from his staff and administration, you know, because there's going to be disagreement on major policy. And the, the chief of staff has to make sure that the president is aware of all sorts of different information and options when we're talking about a particular policy. You know, it doesn't mean the chief of staff doesn't have opinions of their own that they push uh, in the end, and the president will ask them. The chief of staff, if they're doing their job, make sure that, you know, all the, the voices that need to be heard are heard. But also, and I think this is where Klain, I think, really uh, succeeded well. And a lot of the, the modern chiefs, this is a big part of the role, and that's the proxy role. That is going out on the Sunday talk shows and representing the president's views, always being there for the media. In fact, Ron Klain took it to a new level because Klain was very active on social media and Twitter. And, you know, pushing the president's perspective and, and, and wins on, on Twitter. But also the proxy role is being kind of the, the person representing the president in budget negotiations, for example, and, and connecting with Congress and trying to, trying to strike deals. With Klain trying to placate the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, you know, he took that role very seriously and he was very good at it. And so we see now in the 21st century Chief of Staff really has to do all of those roles, uh, and it, it's a very difficult, pressure-filled job. It's one that a lot of chiefs burn out at pretty quickly. You know, Ron Klain has worked his whole adult life for this job, and he's leaving after two years. And it's not because he doesn't love his job. It's because he can't physically take it anymore. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Are they viewed almost more officially as a deputy to the president than the vice president is? Yeah, I don't know if they're, they're, they're not really viewed as an official deputy, but they are viewed as their proxy. They are speaking for the president. And, you know, if you have a chief of staff that's going out and speaking for themselves and not the White House and not the president's point of view, they're not going to last very long in that job. So every time that the, 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 uh, the chief of staff speaks in public, they are representing the president they are speaking for the it's as if the president were speaking but uh, you know i don't i don't think they're viewed much beyond that because let's face it chiefs of staff are appointed they're not even confirmed by the the u.s senate they simply serve at the pleasure of the president whereas the vice president that's an elected office the president can't fire the vice president the president can fire the chief of staff and any good chief of staff remembers that staff is in their title. They are merely part of the staff. They're the most important part of the staff, but they're staff. They're not the president. And there have been times in our history where you've had chiefs of staff forget the staff part of their title and only focus on the chief part. Probably the best example of that is, is Don Regan under Ronald Reagan uh, in, in, in Reagan's second term. In his memoir, uh, Don Regan talked about how he saw himself as the CEO and uh, saw the president as the chairman of the board. <laughs> you know, just kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a kindly public facing figure and that, you know, Re Regan saw himself as the guy that was running the country. It's a very dangerous point of view. And, you know, Regan was fired uh, after a couple of years into the job, and he almost single-handedly destroyed the Reagan presidency. Historically, from chief of staffs, who's been the worst and why is it Mark Meadows? 
<laughs> well, it's funny. <laughs> you know, if you had asked me this three years ago, I'd have said Don Regan was the worst chief of staff in history. <laughs> I think uh, at this point, it is clear uh, that that title uh, goes to Mark Meadows, hands down, without a doubt, the worst chief of staff in history. He had to run for his money with some others that served in the Trump administration in, in that in that very long four years. Um, but Meadows uh, is, uh, without a doubt, in my mind, the worst chief of staff in history. I've written about it. It'll be uh, it'll be a prominent part in our uh, in our book. And the fact is that any chief of staff worth their salt would have never let the craziness that ensued in the latter half of 2020 take place. And especially after the election, not only was Mark Meadows not putting the brakes on the craziness that eventually led up to the insurrection at the Capitol, he was enabling it. He was encouraging it. Behind the scenes, he was one of the people that was facilitating it. One of the most important jobs, well, I would say probably the most important job of a White House chief of staff is to be a guardian and to protect always the president's political interests. And that means sometimes doing things that the president doesn't like, sometimes not carrying out orders that the president gives you that you know as chief of staff are not good for the country or not good for the president or maybe even illegal. Any chief of staff with a heartbeat that understands the role would have never let uh, Donald Trump get away uh, with uh, what he got away with before the election and certainly after the election. And the crazy people that came in, you know, the Mike Flynn's uh, and the, um, you know, the uh, parade of deplorables that, that walked into the, uh, to the White House to try to convince Trump to do something about overturning the election, a good chief of staff would have, you know, he, he would have barricaded the White House and never let those people in to talk to the president. Instead, he let them in, he let them walk in, and and he helped. I mean, he was the guy that set up the phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State in which Donald Trump on tape is heard asking for the Georgia Secretary of State to change votes. And that phone call may be the thing that dooms Trump in the end. In tough times, are chiefs of staff more defined by what they make the president not do as opposed to what they actually do themselves? Well, it's funny because, you know, when when they stand up to a president and get them to change their mind or prevent them from doing something stupid, we rarely hear about that. So that's almost an impossible question to answer because uh, those kind of things aren't happening. And, and I think you can, you can kind of see it in the really good chiefs of staff because during their tenure, you don't have really big mistakes happening in the White House. They have you know, looked ahead uh, and they have seen you know, what that decision will do politically and it will be a disaster and they will convince the president to go in a different direction. So, so we rarely see those things, especially in real time. We may find out about it, you know, six months, a year, or maybe years uh, after when they're talking to an historian. It's rare. So the good chiefs, they rarely get credit for, you know, protecting the president in that way. But the people that, that work with the chief of staff, they know, they see, they understand. And even, even the president, if they're a rational human being, the president will understand and appreciate that as well. Even Richard Nixon appreciated that quality in H.R. Haldeman, a guy that went to jail for him because of Watergate. Haldeman, you know, was very successful in getting Nixon 
to not do some of the craziest things that that President Nixon wanted to do. And and Richard Nixon acknowledged that in conversations with Haldeman and and even, uh, you know, acknowledged that years later after he left the White House when he thought about it, when when he realized that Haldeman had saved him from doing even worse things uh, than than what the public already knows about. Haldeman called himself Nixon's uh, son of a bitch. Yes. Do, they, do they tend to have this capacity for ruthlessness? Obviously, people like Meadows simply didn't. But do the good chief of staff have that kind of cutthroat vibe about them? I think that's a bit of um, hyperbole. I, I guess that would be mm. the, the correct word. Um, there certainly have been uh, chiefs of staff like H.R. Haldeman or maybe maybe a John Sununu uh, under the first Bush or Don Regan uh, under Reagan that had that reputation of being kind of a really tough person and somebody that people feared. And, you know, uh, I, I spoke with a, a member of Congress. I interviewed him uh, about the chief of staff position, and he said, you need an asshole in that position. <laughs> uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel, you could, you could put kind of in that category as well, somebody that, that people feared. Um, but I don't think it's the fear that is a necessary component of being chief, uh, uh, chief of staff. It is people need to respect that person and understand that if they go against what they say, you know, there will be consequences. Like a good example is Dennis McDonough. I don't think Dennis McDonough was necessarily feared by his colleagues. Uh, and he was uh, President Obama's second chief of staff who served pretty much the entire second uh, term uh, for Obama. People didn't really necessarily fear Dennis McDonough, but they respected him. And uh, they knew what he said went. And he led you know, through kind of mutual respect. And there was an understanding that he was speaking for the president and that when he gave staff an order and a job to do that, they needed to get it done. So I don't think it's necessarily fear. I don't think you need a son of a bitch, but you need somebody that is absolutely respected. And if you go back to to the, um, the Trump administration, the Trump White House, there was maybe one chief of staff out of the four that was actually kind of respected, at least at the beginning, and that was John Kelly, the second chief. All the others were very, very weak representatives of, of what a, a chief of staff usually is. And, and you know, Reince Priebus only lasted a little over six months in the job. I mean, that's just unheard of for a first chief of staff. I don't necessarily blame those people. Uh, that's what Donald Trump wanted. He didn't want somebody that was viewed as a, a strong chief of staff figure. He wanted somebody that was weak, that he could push around. Uh, and that was essentially a glorified administrative assistant. And Donald Trump kind of functioned as his own chief of staff. And, you know, there was no gatekeeping. He, anybody that wanted to come in and see Trump could do so. And Trump liked that. You know, he he ran the White House and his administration kind of like he ran, uh, you know, Celebrity Apprentice. And everybody, uh, everybody had a seat at the table. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
Ideally, should it be a mutually beneficial relationship there? You know, does a, a chief of staff shows up a president, but also for a chief of staff to really be strong, they need a strong, consistent, well-respected president at the same time? Well, it certainly helps. <laughs> you know, it certainly helps <laughs> if the president is uh, respected. Certainly, uh, if they're doing well in the uh, public opinion polls, uh, that helps. I, I think the most important thing, though, between, you know, for a chief of staff, though, is that they have the confidence of the president and that the president trusts them and trusts their judgment. And if you lose that as a chief of staff, your days are numbered and the president will be looking for somebody else. It's got to be somebody that they have complete confidence in and that they trust. And they trust they're not only going to do their job, but they trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. They trust that when they tell the chief of staff something, it stays between them and they're not blabbing about it all over town, that they're not going to be leaking to the newspapers about it. You know, it helps if they have a good working relationship. They don't have to be friends. And in fact, I would say it it doesn't work well when they're friends. Uh, Mac McClarty was childhood friends with Bill Clinton. Mac McClarty was the first chief of staff in the Clinton administration. They were best buddies ever since kindergarten. Uh, And McClarty is a very well-liked person in Washington, but I think even he would admit he very much struggled in the chief of staff role because I think he was too close to the president. It was hard for him to be hard on the president when he needed to be. And uh, that first year of the Clinton presidency was very much a disaster. And so I, I think there's this conception in the media that, oh, you know, the, the president and the chief of staff should be super close and they should be friends. No, that can maybe come after they're, they're both out of the White House. Uh, and that has happened. But no, the chief of staff is staff. They work for the president. They are an employee. And uh, the relationship needs to be professional. Uh, and it needs to be based on confidence and trust and respect. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Wow, that went quick. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me for the Bunker USA. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.